families who are struggling with the effects of post-traumatic stress. And it's not just military. Everybody deals with post-traumatic stress. Everybody deals with trauma, post-traumatic stress. Uh, I don't use the D. I don't consider it disorder, so I don't use the D. Uh, but that's what Carrie and I have been involved with for the last uh, four-plus years. So let me start with something of a funny story, all right, as it relates to counseling. Uh, when I came on staff here, I told uh, someone uh, very uh, dear to me, who were named, unnamed, we'll call her Susie, okay? Uh, I told her that I was going to be the director of counseling and administration, and since she is the wife of a combat veteran, uh, she understood the need for, you know, some maybe veterans who have gone through uh, uh, combat and have combat trauma, maybe they need counseling. So she understood that idea. Uh, so let me stop my story here, and let me just give you a little background on Susie. Susie is a long-standing member of the PCUSA, uh, uh, Presbyterian Church USA. That's the liberal one. Uh, that's the, the one that does not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Okay? So that's just a little background on Susie. The, uh, so as, as, we started, as I started telling her about what I did, she was saying, oh, why do you have to counsel so much? Why do you do that? And so I said, well, that's just what we do. I mean, as, as believers, as members of a congregation, that's just part of doing the one another's with each other. Uh, it's just stuff that should come naturally to us as, as members, as Christians in, uh, in, a, in body. And so she decided to explore that a little bit. So she went to her uh, female pastor of their church and asked her if they did much counseling. And she said, no, we refer that to the professionals. And so Susie, who's of good Oklahoma stock, decided, well, let me see if maybe another faith did much counseling or discipling. And so she went to a Catholic friend and asked this Catholic friend, do you all do much counseling? And this Catholic friend said, no, no, sure don't. So the, uh, my mom, uh, excuse me. <laughs> Purge that. <laughs> uh, the, uh, so Susie uh, and her friend, Catholic friend, concluded that, you know, uh, this whole counseling thing, sounds like maybe it's a Baptist thing. And maybe it's just Baptists who have all the problems, because clearly the Presbyterians don't or the Catholics don't. So, uh, yeah, yeah, we're the ones with all the problems. And I tried to explain it to Susie that, no, it's but whatever. It was... Uh, We'll keep that one in prayer. And speaking of prayer, let's just go ahead and go to prayer. Uh, thank you, Lord, so much for your word. Your word that's in English that we can read, study, meditate, and use as a lamp unto our feet. As uh, Dr. Horn so beautifully explained this morning. Thank you for your son who drew us to him, who is the word incarnate. Thank you for allowing us to gather this morning. We thank you for Dr. Horn and Nacelli and, and their willingness to give of their time. Lord, I thank you uh, for just making our church, our congregation, uh, a people who are focused on the text, who want to look to your word for personal and passionate relationship with Jesus Christ. And from that, their 
Light is lit. They have hope and joy, even in the midst of trials. So thank you, Lord, for the men and women who have come to this class. And please guide this talk this morning in such ways to bring you the glory as we open your inspired text. Thank you for your word, which does not return void and accomplishes what you desire to accomplish. In your precious name, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So our topic this morning is the text and counseling. The, uh, and what we want to do is we, an, we want to answer the question, what role does the text, what role does scripture, what role does the Bible play in biblical counseling? And we want to answer it in two parts. We're going to answer why we use the text and how we use the text. So let me start with the big picture. Let me start with this thing, just this idea of called biblical counseling. And let me try and describe it to you because in, in our opinion, our belief, our trust is it is not only superior to every other kind of counseling, but we know that it is also the only one that has an eternal perspective. When I say counseling, when I use that term this morning, uh, unless I'm describing these other kinds of counseling methodologies, I'm talking about biblical counseling. Well, we will open scripture and share with the men and women, our brothers and sisters who are in front of us. And what we want to do is we want them to understand how to, to seek it in his word. We want them to learn what's in his word so then they can apply it to their lives. And not just individually, but then as we do the one another's, how they apply it to their lives individually. Because we all struggle with sin. We all have things in our lives that we need to come alongside each other with. And that sin that we deal with, whether it's our sin, the sin of someone else who's imposing their sin on us, or because we live in a fallen world. And we have things like cancer and things like that. So sin permeates just about everything that we do. From a biblical counseling perspective, counseling is simply discipleship. This simply means coming alongside someone else and helping them grow in Christ-likeness through the means of grace. And those means of grace are the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, and the church. Counseling is essentially a more intensive and focused discipleship centered on whatever problem someone may be facing. Finally, biblical counseling is, is effective, and we heard this from uh, Dr. Horn when he's talked about just we, we've got that, the Holy Spirit. But it's effective for brothers and sisters. It's effective for Christians. Because without believing that this is truth, it's just foolishness to the unbeliever. So before we can start counseling someone from the scriptures, from the text, we need to make sure that they're a believer. So if they're not a believer, we do what? What do we do if non-believers? Evangelize. That's the start point if they're unbelievers. If they are believers, now we can go straight to the text, okay? So, I have three goals for my portion of the, the class this morning. That you have a general understanding of what biblical counseling is. That you see the importance of a strong trust, a strong trust in God's inspired text and have confidence knowing that it is sufficient, it is good for, it is profitable for 
what God calls us to be and even do in the midst of the trials that we're facing. That you see the importance of the third item is that you see the importance of identifying with the text that it is applicable to our personal lives. And we can see ourselves in the text even, in the trials that the men and women and families are facing in Scripture. So imagine, if you will, a friend of yours comes to you and says, her husband just told her he wants a divorce because he fell in love with a co-worker. Or maybe it's a friend who's dealing with sexual abuse from their past and the memories and hurt associated with that. Or maybe it's a friend who's approached you and said he or she is dealing with pornography. And this friend of yours is dealing with shame, guilt, anger, bitterness, forgiveness, and a myriad of other issues in their life. What do you do with that person? How would you help that person? Would your first thought be, oh, let me call Pastor Brent or Paul or James or myself? Would that be your first response? Or would your response be to go online and search for a Christian counselor or a therapist? Or would your response be, let me pray with you, but in the back of your mind, you're just kind of hoping that that problem goes away because it just seems so all-encompassing, so hard to, to get through. As difficult as these problems are, these are common issues in our culture today, just as they were common in the culture of Jesus' day when he walked on this planet. And though you may feel overwhelmed by the nature and complexity of the issues that you and your friends are facing, God is not. God is not overwhelmed. He has provided us for wisdom on how to address all these issues and more in His Word. He addresses those things. But where do we start? The question is, is what kind of counseling should we go to? What kind of counseling should we use? So I'm going to clump counseling into three basic categories. The first is category one, is this counsel is what the world refers to as the professionals, i.e. therapists or psychiatrists, psychologists, with an estimated 25% of the American population having some sort of mental illness, about 20% of our population uses these professionals when they want to get help. Psychologists are trained in the top schools or most popular methodologies at the time, and then they choose to counsel or treat people's problems in the way that they've come to believe is the most effective. And there's, I think, over 250 different methodologies that they faith, that they follow. A tenant with this worldly counsel would be the use of some psychotropic meds to help minimize some of the unpleasant and debilitating thoughts and emotions that accompany these life's problems. A real-world example that Carrie encountered with a gal that she was counseling. Uh, it was a, a gal who, she and her husband, went to the Veterans Administration for counsel because they were having marriage issues, marriage problems. This therapist counseled this couple to basically bring, uh, do sexually immoral things, uh, basically commit adultery, bring a third party into their marriage in order to uh, make it more interesting. They encourage the use of pornography. That's just one simple slice 
example of some of the uh, counsel that the world gives. So that's category one. Category two is what we'll refer to as an integrated model of counseling. And this is where psychological methodologies and terms are blended with Christian doctrines and precepts. This has been, uh, this has a spiritual component to it that's added to the conversation between the therapist and the person who is coming into their, their office for counsel. However, the, the goal and the method is still entrenched heavily into psychological methodologies. And at the end of the day, man is still at the center of the issue as opposed to God. So a simple example of this one is there's a book called His Needs, Her Needs, How to Affair-Proof Your Marriage. Has anybody heard of that? Okay, it's a rather popular book that's in the kind of marriage retreat uh, venue. Uh, the premise of understanding and knowing your spouse is a good thing. I am called to know Carrie and live with her in an understanding way. That's a good thing, that I understand her. It's a good thing that the wife understands her husband. However, if you look at this title, his needs and her needs. So what this potentially morphs into is when those needs become demands. And then the next step is, you're not meeting my needs, I'm not going to meet yours. And now we have crisis. Because once again, man is at the center. His needs, her needs. Man's at the center. So let's go to this third category, which is biblical counseling. And that's what this, uh, this morning's talk is all about. The model of counseling that we practice here at Colonial is biblical counseling. It's uh, the model of counseling that other like-minded churches like ours all across the United States uh, follow. God says in 2 Peter 1.3 that he has given us everything that we need. 2 Peter 1.3, everything that we need for life and godliness through knowing him. And we know him through the text. Instead of putting man at the center, it puts God at the center of the person's life. It is also the type of counsel that will point to an eternal hope, a relationship with Christ. And from that relationship, even though in the midst of that crazy hard trial, that challenge in their life, they can still experience the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Even that trial may continue, those hardships, because of the three different kinds of sin, their sin, someone else's sin, or a fallen world sin, they can still experience those nine characteristics. So I'm so thankful for Dr. Horn's message last night, emphasizing belief and trust in God's Word. Counseling the text recognizes that God is sovereign over all things and tells us that in all things happen for our good and His glory. If we believe that, as he talked about last night, if we trust that, if we believe that there's a purpose to what we're experiencing, we will help people move from hopelessness to hope. If God allowed a trial in our life, he has a way for us to move through that trial in such a way as for us to know that it's for our good and his glory. Let me say that one more time. If we believe in a sovereign God who tells us all things happen for our good and his glory, then there is a God-glorifying purpose for my problem, and that is ultimately good for me. And with that, I can have hope, and we can start building hope in the person 
that we're coming alongside. It's not senseless. These trials, these problems are not senseless. There is a purpose for them. And it's a God-given purpose. He's trying to grow something in us. And that's something that's Christ-likeness. That, that belief, that trust in God's Word and the promises that He makes in His Word is that light unto our feet. It's that path that we can follow. So that's the big picture. That's what biblical counseling is. Simply put, opening God's Word and walking this person through God's Word, through that relationship with Christ. As a counselor, I, I agree with John MacArthur who describes biblical counseling this way. It says, The Bible contains God's mind and will for our life. It is the only source of absolute divine authority for us as believers, as followers, and as servants of Jesus Christ. So as I unpack this class, this is my portion of this class, of why the text, I'm going to emphasize two things. The first is trust. Very much like, <laughs> but infinitely less than uh, Dr. Horn last night. Uh, but I'm going to emphasize trust, trust in God's Word. Now, I pray that the people I minister to, and that's the ongoing prayer in the back of my mind when I'm kneecapped and kneecapped, eyeball to eyeball with someone in front of me, that they would come to trust in God's Word. So I'm going to spend the bulk of my time this morning focused on that. Because if we can get that, our path is laid out in front of us. If we can't get there, it is infinitely, I shouldn't say infinitely, it is much harder. Uh, the second point I want to emphasize is I want them to see that Scripture is applicable to their life. I want them to see how the, the challenges that Joseph faced or Christ faced, that Paul faced, they can see similarities in their life and draw hope from that. So let's get started. Let's start building on this thing called trust. I'll use the text to, sh to show you. That's where I'm going to go first and foremost uh, as, as we unpack this. And I hope that in this manner you'll get a sense of the depth and breadth of the magnificence and youthfulness of God's Word to each of us in each one of our lives and in the lives of the people we come across. So as I read these verses... I just, I pray, I ask that, you, that they just wash over you. That they will be the light in your life as they are as, as believers. And then we can use that. We will radiate that light to that unbeliever maybe that we're evangelizing. Or maybe that believer who is in a crazy hard struggle. The list that I'm going to read to you is not all inclusive. But I think it does highlight certain elements of that are required in trusting God's Word. So, let's go. It is in infallible in its totality. We see this in Psalm 19, verses 17. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It is inerrant. We see that in, in Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words, lest He rebuke you and you be found a liar. It is complete. Revelation 22, 18 and 19. 
I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the, of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this book. It's authoritative and final. Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. It provides assurance of salvation. We see that in John 8, verse, verse uh, 20, I believe. No, excuse me, it's John 30, verses 30 uh, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. It will accomplish its promises. Dr. Horn landed on this pretty hard this morning. Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Are you all getting the momentum of this? I hope that's my prayer. That as, as I just read these scriptures, that they are a momentum. They build on each other. That this is something I can trust. This is something I can build on. Let's keep going. It's the source of truth. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It's the sort of source of God's blessing when obeyed. Luke eleven twenty eight. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It's the source of growth. 1 Peter 2, 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow in salvation. Source of power. Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the source of guidance. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. My hope is that from this short list of verses highlighting the value of the text characteristics and promises, you can see why why we use the text in counseling. Our hope and prayer is that the counseling will begin to trust the text. The major distinctive between biblical counseling and other counseling methodologies is the sufficiency of Scripture. A wonderful place to start, and a place where I generally start all the time, is 2 Peter 3, 16 and 17. And we heard it done so beautifully last night, so wonderfully uh, by Dr. Horn. And I, I start there, particularly when I'm talking with uh, military or first responders, because they're used to using manuals and having standard operating procedures. And I don't want to boil scripture down to a manual or an SOP. That's not my intent. But they're used to opening something like this and saying, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. They got that. They understand that. And so when I can turn to them and say, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And then I can look him in the eye and say, the creator of the universe said that. The creator of the universe created this word for us, inspired this word to be written, so that we would know. That helps them put their feet on something that's firm 
and not the shifting sands of our culture that changes, if not moment by moment, almost day by day, month by month. And we can see it in the news and our culture today. Don't need to go any more detail. But when we can say it's inspired, that brings hope. That brings something firm for them to, to latch on to. So what does this word inspired mean? That's probably the logical next question. Let me define it for you. Scripture is written. This is what inspiration means. Scripture is written by men using their own language, personality, and vocabulary for every word, but every word is inspired by God. The original text of the Bible is written as if God himself spoke it, even though he used humans with their unique personalities and styles to write each book of the Bible. The words, phrases, and the messages itself belongs to God alone. The word inspired means breathed out. God used the Holy Spirit to guide each of the writers to write exactly what he intended to be written. And as a result, it is without error. However, although the Bible is exactly what God wanted to say, it is written how the writer wanted to write it. Inspired also means that God has spoken all that he will speak on concerning that which he has included in the Bible. That's just a short description of inspiration. Volumes have been written on inspiration. Just This is the, the definition I used in being certified through ACBC when they wanted me to define inspiration. But embedded in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, it says all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. It means it's good for. It means it's sufficient for. So let me describe, let me define what sufficient means. Sufficient means it is enough for all that is needed. In this case, it is sufficient for or profitable for, for all that is needed for salvation and sanctification. The sufficiency of Scripture means that God has provided in His Word all that man needs to know and obey in order to live as an image-bearing worshiper who loves God and loves others. In Grudem's Systematic Theology, he states that the sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contains words God intended His people to have at each stage of redemptive history. And that it now contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and for obeying Him perfectly. We see that in Peter, where he writes to those who have received the faith, the same kind as his faith, that God granted to them by His divine power everything that we need. Remember that integrated model of counseling, my needs, her needs, or his needs, her needs? Everything that we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us according to His own glory and excellence. David Platt wrote a commentary on 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And I, I really like the way he, he just puts it right out there. He says, do not just believe Scripture, use it. If Christians believe that their Bible is inspired by God, the creator of the universe, if we believe this, then we should naturally see it as profitable, as sufficient, as good for coming alongside men and women who are struggling, to include ourselves. But then we see these four other words that are added in that scripture, the way it's concluded. 
for teaching, for rebuke, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. These four words aren't just four words with the same meaning. They each have their own meaning and application. And you can use them individually or you can use them as a building block with someone particularly as a young believer, as a new Christian. Teaching, the way I've seen it defined is, this is divine instruction from both the Old and the New Testament. Repuke or rebuke is for wrong behavior or belief, or wrong behavior or belief and pointing out the error of what's wrong. That's wrong. That's all that is. You're not addressing anything else, how to fix it. You're just pointing out what's wrong. The next step, which is correction, that's how you restore it to the proper condition. And that's important. This is, in essence, helping someone else. They know that they've done wrong. Okay, committed adultery, that's wrong. Okay, how do we restore that relationship? That's the correction. And then the training, how do we prevent that from happening in the future? How do we develop training to help this couple that has struggled through this horrible sin recover from that? It's training in godly righteousness. So as the counselor uses the text to teach, reprove, correct, and for, to train, the result is that this person will be, and you guys can fill in the blank. You know where I'm going. Equipped for every good work. That's the promise. One of the multitude of promises that, that Dr. Horn referenced this morning. Those promises are amazing gift of grace that we get to receive. If we can get the person to trust, then we're on solid ground. We can move forward. So that's my first point. That's where I, I wanted to camp this morning. Trust in God's inspired word, knowing that it is sufficient for all that we need to know for a life that glorifies God. So let me transition to my second point. And this one's going to be a lot shorter. The foundation's been set. I believe that it is helpful for people who I minister to, who a counselor ministers the word to, to see a reflection of their symptoms, the things that they're going through in God's word, to see themselves in scripture, if you will. When I talk with, with men, and primarily I do it mostly with men who are suffering from the effects of post-traumatic stress, trauma in their life, whether it's combat trauma or maybe it was sexually abused as a child, but particularly those with combat trauma, where I go is Psalm 6. Because I think Psalm 6 describes David's post-traumatic stress. So let me read that to you. And, and you just think if this resonates with someone who is suffering from post-traumatic stress. Remember, David was a warrior. Close quarter battle. Up close and personal. Certainly used the sling, but he probably also used the sword. Not too dissimilar from this. Let me read this psalm to you. I'll pick it up in verse 2. It says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Shoal, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night... I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of my grief. 
this warrior is on his bed in tears, struggling because of what's going on in his past. And what does he do? What does King David do? Pick up verse 8. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayers. By showing the men who I'm talking to this, this psalm, they begin to identify more with the text. They can see themselves in this. Whether it's a first responder who is responding to a horrific accident, a law enforcement who has to take the life and because of a, whatever the reason, those are traumatic events. I just read just this morning, a law enforcement officer took his life because he was involved in a, uh, in a shooting about a year and a half ago. If we can show the relevance of Scripture in the lives of the people we're sitting eyeball to eyeball to, from there we can build on hope. From there we can help them understand uh, that this hope resides in a relationship with someone named Jesus Christ. And that is where they can build that relationship is where we want them to go for that hope. So in these last 30 minutes or so, I've tried to give you an overview of the distinctives associated with biblical counseling as it's compared with other methodologies. I hope I've shown you through God's Word and by walking through the text, and I know I read a lot of text at you, uh, I hope you saw the depth and breadth of that. That it is God and His Word alone that we should use if we want people to be restored to usefulness to God. So what I'd like to do is turn it over to Carrie. She's going to transition from the why to the how we use text in counseling. Thank you, sweetheart. Yeah, I get to call him sweetheart. Um, so we are going to shift gears now a little bit onto the how. How do we minister the text in counseling? And um, my goal for us, for you this, this morning, is that for you to come away understanding what it means to minister the text. We've seen why. How do we actually minister the text? And then also that you would become encouraged and confident to minister the text in your own counseling. So we're going to do four things. We're going to look at our calling to do that, to minister the text, what the goal of that should be. The text that we minister, we have 66 books, 50 authors, my Bible's 2,000 pages. What text out of here do we minister? And then just some methods, basic practical things that you can take. So my, the text that I'm going to use to frame our discussion this morning is the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul in um, Psalm 19.7. So we see here that the law of the Lord, the text of Scripture, the Word of God is perfect for restoring the soul. And that's perfect for the task that we face. Because helping people deal with their problems that they're having is, in, a in essence, soul care. That's what we're doing. Our souls or our hearts, those are where our problems are coming from, Jesus says. It's from out of our hearts that these problems come. The problems maybe of anxiety or fear or depression. And, and John and I uh, brought some of the, the little booklets and things, just common things people struggle with. Um, those are issues of the heart. And we all need help with that. Because 
Um, Jeremiah 17, 9 says our hearts are desperately sick and wicked and, deceit and deceitful, and we can't even know them. So we need help. We need help from the, the scriptures because Hebrews 4.12 says God's word can penetrate our hearts and even dividing our soul and spirit, joint and marrow, judge our thoughts and intentions. And that the man of understanding, uh, the thoughts, our thoughts are deep waters, but a man of understanding come drawn out. So we need help. We need help for this. So the first foundational truth, just to wrap our, our mind around, is that God's word is perfect for this task of soul care. And that the second thing is that he calls each of us to that task. We're, and you know what? We already do it every day, if you think about it. We all give and receive counsel every day. You know? Jesus said each day has enough, enough trouble of its own. Well, amen to that. And we need help. How do I deal with this trouble that I'm having? People are going to ask us. They need help. Where are we going to turn? Where do people turn? Family, friends, social media. John mentioned therapists, books, blogs, YouTube. People are always seeking and giving counsel on how we do life. So we are all, maybe before when I said you're more equipped to counsel, you think, whoa, 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 I'm just here coming to your class. I'm not a counselor. Don't be making me a counselor. Well, yes, we are. And we're going to see that we are all called by God to receive counsel and give counsel from the text of Scripture. Um, if we think about it, this whole idea that we are created to receive counsel, we go back to the beginning, you know, God creates Adam and Eve, puts them in this perfect garden, and what does he do? He blesses them, and then he counsels them and tells them, this is who you are, this is who I am, this is what I want you to do. He spoke to them. And then even after they disobeyed him and turned from him, what does he have to do? Okay, now this is what your life is going to look like from now on. And then that very first counseling session that we see in Scripture, their kids messed up, sibling rivalry. Cain's looking at Abel saying, hey, God's looking to favor on his, his offering, but not mine. God says, well, Cain, why is your face cast down? If you do right, won't your face be lifted up? Behold, sin is crouching at your door. It's desired for you. You must master it. We see that we are designed to receive this counsel, and not just as created beings. This is really interesting to consider, that Jesus in his incarnation also received counsel from God, his Father. Isaiah 50, verse 4 says that, um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to find where I might have. Uh, that 50 verse 4 says, He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. We don't think of Jesus doing that in his incarnation as the Son of Man, the perfect image bearer doing that. But he showed us that he did that when he was sharing in uh, John 12, 49. He says, I don't speak on my own initiative. The Father himself who sent me, he's given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. He's receiving counsel from his Father. John 8, 26, he who sent me is true. The things I heard from him, I speak to the world. And God expected not only his image bearer, his created beings, to receive counsel from him. He expected them to counsel each other from the text. We see that in Deuteronomy 6, the great Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. But he says, these words which I'm commanding you today should be on your heart. You need to receive this counsel from me. And then what? And you shall teach them to your sons. And you shall teach them diligently, your sons. You should talk of them when you sit down in the house, when you walk by the way, when you rise up. When you do life, you should be counseling the text of Scripture to each other. And again, Jesus modeled this for us. I mentioned those two verses. Um, in verse 50, 
Isaiah 50, verse 4, he says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with the word. So Jesus modeled that for that. And even as we look at him, the perfect image bearer, how did he handle the problems? That, I mean, you think of the pressure he faced. I mean, at the beginning of his ministries, sent by the Spirit of God into the wilderness for 40 days, fasting for 40 days. You know, talk about the, each day's trouble. How did he respond to that? Just one example, when the, you know, Satan said, make these broad, you're hungry, we'll make the bread, you know, bread out of rocks. And he says, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And brothers and sisters, we have been commissioned by him to do the very same thing, right? He says, John 7, 16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. I'm receiving text from Father, and I, and I, and teaching it to others. John 20, 21 says, just as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And then, of course, what we're all familiar with, the Great Commission. How do we make disciples? We baptize and we teach them to obey all that he has commanded. So hopefully you, you can have confidence, okay, I am called to do this. Receive text and to minister the text. We, the second thing I want us to make sure we, we kind of are on the same page about is what is going to be our goal when we minister the text. And we're going to be very different from secular psychology or even integrated Christian counseling because their, their desire is to help people. People with problems are coming and they hurt. They have emotional pain, they have relational pain, they can have physical pain, and they hurt. And it's a very common desire is I want to relieve this person of their hurt. Maybe you should leave that relationship. Maybe you should take this drug. Maybe you should do this. We need to have our goal when we're ministering the text, the same goal as God's, which we've already seen in, in Psalm 17:9. The law of the Lord is perfect for restoring our souls. For restoring our souls. Well, restoring our souls to what? Well, restoring our souls for what they were created for. Going back to the garden. Again, living with God, loving with God, loving his every word obeying God. They delighted. Adam and Eve delighted in hearing God's word and do whatever he said to do. They delighted in each other. They loved each other. All those things that he tells us to do, consider other people's needs more important than your own, all the one another's, they did. That's what we were created to do, to have that kind of intimate relationship with God. We are after restoring souls to that place. That's what we can have in the new covenant regeneration. That's what we can have. God is restoring us to what we had in the beginning. That would be the restoration of a relationship with him, broken through sin. That would be the restoration of image bearing, which was marred by our depravity. That would be the restoration of worship, delighting in him. So we're ministering their text, not necessarily to provide relief, but we're we are ministering the text to restore people to what they were created for. So now we want to look at Okay, what exactly of the text am I supposed to minister again? There's a lot in here. Um, we're going to look to Jesus again, okay? We love looking at Jesus, so we're going to look at Jesus. Uh, Mark 1.14 says, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. In the ministry of the text and counseling, first and foremost, brothers and sisters, we minister the gospel. We minister the gospel. Why? And we've already, John mentioned this, and the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
And I know sometimes we kind of get hung up on salvation is the end. That's what I want. I want my brother to be saved, and I do want my brother to be saved. I want this person to be saved, and we're after that. But salvation is not the end. It's the means to the end, which is the restoration to a relationship with God and to bearing his image and to worshiping him. But the gospel is the power of God to do that. The gospel is the, go- the power of God's. In Romans 1.16, we see that. So if we think about, is the gospel the power of God to restore the relationship? Yes, we would say that. Absolutely. That would be the doctrine of justification, to take we are enemies, alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, following after the prince of the power of the air. And while we were dead in our transgressions and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. Yep, that's the gospel, is able to restore us to that relationship. What about image bearing? What about worship? Is the gospel the power of God for salvation for that? Yes. Sometimes I think we get, we think, we anchor the gospel is just for justification, you know? The past tense of our salvation. I have been saved from the penalty of my sin, so now I have this relationship with God. But the gospel is God's power of God for salvation for the present tense, salvation. I'm sorry, sanctification, transforming us into Christ's image. Now, if we think of that, if we really think of that, we're being transformed into his image, right? And we're thinking about worship, and we're thinking about image bearing. Jesus was the perfect image bearer. Hebrews 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of his nature. Right? He always and only did those things that please the Father. Right? And he loved God perfectly and loved other people perfectly. And the gospel is God's power to transform us into his image. So, yes, we want to, we want to remember that our goal is restoration. And what is the primary aspect of the text that we're going to teach is the gospel. So then we think, okay, Carrie, but what exactly is the gospel? We could have all these definitions of what the gospel is, but in essence, the gospel is a person, okay? The gospel is a person. And we see this in the very first public proclamation of the gospel in the New Testament. Some angels are doing their thing, watching their flock by night, and angel shows up. The glory of the Lord shines all around them. They're really afraid. And what does he say? Don't be afraid. I'm bringing you the gospel. It's the first evangelion that we see in the New Testament. I'm bringing you good news of great joy, which is for everyone. Today, four spiritual laws have come into being. No, 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 that's not what happened. He said, today, in the city of David, a savior has been born for you. It's a person. It's Christ the Lord. And I loved how Sam was talking about what that word Christ means. So... I, and, and we saw this this morning with Dr. Horn, too, in 2 Corinthians 4. What did he say as far as he's talking about the gospel? The light of the gospel of the glory of God, Christ, who is the image of God. The gospel, in, a, in essence, is the person of Christ, his glory. Who is he? What is he like? What does he do? Right? Milton Vincent in the Gospel Primer says that the glory of God in Christ is the most powerful agent of God available to mankind. It is so Powerful that it transforms those who merely gaze upon. Well, where's Milton getting that? He's getting that from 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, here's where we're going to see it, are being transformed into that very same image from glory to glory. So, brothers and sisters, I have to cut some things here. Um, Primarily, what we want to minister is the gospel. And what this means practically for you if you're having a counseling conversation. 
somebody's asking you about how to do life and stuff like that. We want to be saying, we want to be praying, how do I bring Christ into this picture? How do I bring God into view? How do I bring the gospel into view? They can't see. And it's not just that God, has, the God of this world has blinded the unbelieving unbelievers. We struggle with unbelief too. We struggle. I, in my struggle with gluttony, I, had, I didn't really believe that Jesus was more pleasurable than a plate of brownies. Today we saw, oh, how sweet are your words to my taste? They're sweeter than honey. And I'm thinking, well, no, brownies look really good right now. <laughs> so, but that's unbelief. I really don't believe it. You know, I might say I believe it. You're my everything. You're my all in all. But when life gets hard, I'm going to read pornography. I'm going to go drink. I'm going to go watch football. So we all struggle with unbelief. But what? He's, he's blinded us so that we cannot see the light of the gospel of God in the face of Christ. So if that's what we want to do. That's the essence of what we want to do is how do I minister the text of, of the gospel? How do I bring Jesus to this person? So let's talk about some just practical things, okay? Methodologies of effective text ministry. And as I do this, kind of like John, he was kind of giving you some scriptures just to kind of whip your appetite. That's what I'm going to be doing too. I'm going to give you just a couple ways that I would bring the gospel into different counseling situations, okay? But I hope it's making you think, oh, that's, that's what I, I can bring Christ into that. I would love to share that about Christ with this person. I, I can do that. So this is not exhaustive. These are just examples, okay? The very first thing you want to do, though, that is pretty essential, is that you need to use God's categories, okay? You want to use biblical categories for soul diagnosis. Remember, we're talking about soul care or heart care. What, what are they thinking? What are they feeling? What are they choosing? And you want to go, okay, what are God's, because we can, you know, the world has, oh, I have OCD or I have, you know, I'm, passive aggressive or this person is that and there's the the psychology's bible the dsm diagnostic and statistic manual mental disorders i don't even know how many there are now you know it started out little book with i don't know 100 and now it's this big and and so you want to use biblical categories and just as a shout out right now um this is a great the, the ashers have taken pretty much everything in the dsm-5 and put it into biblical categories so I don't mean to overwhelm you with that, but that resource is available. But you, let me just share with you three awesome biblical categories that God gives us that we can use in our counseling conversations. It's from 1 Thessalonians 5.14, where he encourages us to admonish the unruly, uh, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Unruly, faint-hearted, and weak. Okay? Let's just look at what it would mean to minister the gospel the text of the gospel to somebody who's unruly. Generally, this is a person who's sinning, struggling with sin. Okay? Galatians uh, 6 1 would say that they are, um, they're caught in a trespass. Okay? So, uh, and of course, there's so many different problems we could, ways we could sin, right? In the church, too, <laughs> not just out the church, okay? I won't go into all of those. Again, the, the different, a lot of the topics of the books and stuff going on there. Um, and some people are so, it's not just a sinning, they're enslaved to the sin. They can't seem to stop it. The world would call that addiction, okay? The biblical term would be enslavement to it. So how do I minister the text of gospel to somebody who's struggling with a sin? And let's say, now we have another biblical category for that. Are they repentant or not? The, the gospel I minister is going to be different, whether they're repentant. Let's say they come to you, they are. They're like, I'm just... You know, I'm struggling with pornography. I'm trying to stop. I just, what are some 
texts of the gospel that you're going to want to minister to them. Well, I would want to minister to them. They need to know that Jesus is the Lamb of God who has, takes away the sin of the world, that he has borne their sin in his body on the cross. Why? So they could die to that sin and live to righteousness. They were healed by his wounds. You want to show them, too, that that certificate of debt has been nailed to the cross to tell us die. It is finished. It is done. That they can anchor their heart that God would do that for them, provide that for them in their sin. I know with me and my struggle with alcohol, um, one some gospel truths texts that helped me is learning that Jesus was my high priest who could struggle and sympathize with my weakness. He was tempted in every way I am tempted, and yet he didn't sin. And I and he invites me to boldly come to his throne of grace. I need help. I need grace to help. I need his mercy. So that is one thing to help somebody like that. Help them know he's their high priest. Also, he's their example, right? He's their example. I loved how, how um, Sam was talking about following in his footsteps. That's what First Peter says. It says that Jesus is our example so much so that we are to follow exactly in his steps. And that light of the world, you know, that lights up our foot step by step by step. So... Um, we want to help them see that he's their example. What if they're unrepentant? Well, if they're unrepentant, they need to see Jesus as a righteous judge. Man, coming on that. This horse, army, sword coming out of his mouth. They need to know he's going to come to judge the earth, and they will be judged, and that he is also a God of wrath. And, you know, Jesus described hell more vividly and more often than his earthly ministry than heaven. Sometimes we don't like to talk about that, but we should talk about it. Remember, we're going to model Christ. What he received from the Father, he taught. So we want to make sure they understand that. Okay? We don't want somebody with an evil, unbelieving heart falling away from the living God. And with that, you can also temper that, too, with the gospel of grace. I love Isaiah 55 for someone like that. It's let the first wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. He needs to see himself as wicked and in evil. But then let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, he will abundantly pardon. He is that. He is that righteous judge, but he is also the um, one who has provided for our redemption. Okay, so that's, that's the unruly person. And again, we're just, just tipping the tip of the iceberg here. But what about someone who's faint-hearted? So this is, this is more someone who's suffering. They're in pain. Again, it could be you know, from their own sin, or it could be physical, emotional, relational pain from others. And what we want to see, I think, one of the key things is you do want to see them, them to see Jesus as their high priest. We, we, a lot of Christians, we get that Jesus was our, took away our sin. But do we realize, Hebrews 2 says, that God made him, made Jesus like his brethren in every way. And so he perfected him through suffering. I didn't have to do that. He could have, you know, Lamb of God, you need to pay for it all of the perfect life. No, Jesus experienced more emotional abuse, mistreatment, physical abuse, relational abuse than we could ever possibly know so that we can come to him and know he was tempted to respond to that pain the way we would be tempted to respond to that pain. But he didn't. He didn't. He never sinned. So to let them know they have that kind of high priest. Um, the other thing that I think they really need to know is that he is the sovereign, Alpha and Omega. He will restore all things. He is the ruler judge. They need to understand that. 
his sovereignty. Someone who's faint-hearted also may be somebody struggling with an ongoing sin pattern. And um, uh, we, we pray after, can we go over like a couple minutes? Are we okay? Sorry. We pray, we stay in here and pray, right? Okay. I know we, I want to, John and I want to leave time for questions. So somebody who is faint-hearted could be, they've struggled with a sin pattern for a long time. They can't even seem to get it. And you know what, we have a lot of these in the church that we think, I can't even tell anybody, I've been a Christian this many years, how can I tell them I still struggle with pornography? How could I tell them I still struggle with alcoholism? How could I still, I mean, I'm supposed to be this, so there's this quiet burden and they've been trying to do it. I know I'm supposed to put this off and put this on and they just are under this burden of guilt. That's how it was with me with gluttony. 40 years, I mean the alcohol, the Lord restored my soul fairly quickly, but gluttony, when I went to get my master's degree and they make you pick something that you struggle with and I'm like, I'm not picking gluttony. I was bulimic and all. I'm like, I'm not, I, I, will, I never will get out of this. I was under this guilt and this weight. I will never get out of this. Well, ministry of the text of the gospel for me was the imputation of Christ's righteousness, my identity in Christ. Because I felt like I am the worst Christian ever. I want to do what's right. Romans 7 is where I lived. But I thought that I was in Christ, but then when I sinned and went and ate the brownies, then I was out of Christ. God was angry with me. He was displeased with me. Daddy was upset. And then when I confessed my sin, oh, okay, now I'm back. In, and I'm going, boop. Boop, guilt, going to bed, guilty, 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 because I didn't, I blew it again. Wow, freedom, good news. Carrie, your righteousness in Christ is always, it's not your performance for him, it's his performance for you. Don't move from the hope of that gospel, even in your sanctification. And what did that do for me? Like, he loves me now just as much as he's going to love me when I come home to him. I have Christ right now just as much as I will be when I'm glorified. Oh my goodness, it seemed like the daisy, he loves me, he loves me, he loves me, seemed too good to be true. But what does that do? It fuels love for him. I can abide in his love. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. See, I looked at that as a threat. Carrie, if you really loved me, you would keep my commandments. And it's a promise, honey. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Because Jesus modeled that. He said, so that the world may know I love the Father, as he's given me commandment, I do it. He was fueled by love. So that's one of the things you would want to do. Also, for somebody who struggles with ongoing sin, superior pleasure in Christ. That they would find this thing that they think is going to give them, you know, God says it's a lie in your right hand. They feed on ashes. But it looks so good. You need to replace it with superior pleasure in Christ. Helping the weak, we're going to finish up with this. This is someone who is burdened. They can't take another step. They're so weak. I just can't do it. I can't do it. I have these little kids at home. I don't know what to do. I have teenagers at home. I don't know what to do. I have parents living with me. I don't want, know what to do. Uh, or again, you know, um, job situation. They feel so burdened and weighed down they can't move. And the question we want to ask them as they're saying, I can't, I can't, is can it be you don't know how? Can it be you don't know how? It's a weakness from not knowing how to deal with this thing. So they lack the resources or the ability or the knowledge. So with this person, we want to point them to the crisis or shepherd. You're his sheep. He, you listen to his voice. You follow him. 
He will restore your soul. He'll lead you in the right path. He will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. He'll counsel you with his eye. That there's that relationship. He's your shepherd, right? Also the cornerstone. He's your cornerstone. He said, if you hear my words and act on them, although the storm is blowing and you think your house is going to fall, you won't. Doesn't mean the storm's going to stop, but you will be able to stand. And then finally, another thing, gospel text. He's your wonderful counselor. Remember that? I know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He's your wonderful counselor. He says, if you're weary, come to me. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle. I'm humble in heart. You'll find rest for that soul, even as I teach you how to do this. And this is really the second thing. You're going to point him to the hope of the gospel of Christ in those texts. But also, we want to point them to the gospel of Christ in his body, us. This person needs practical help. They're a young mom with littles. She needs a break outside of the house. They're a widow. She needs help with her car. It's, an, it's a, a man struggling with maybe a difficult marriage with his wife. He needs an older man. Hey, I've walked through that. We can walk this together. Somebody's struggling with pornography. I'll show you. I'll walk with you on how to do that. So the, help, the weak person, we also want to minister the text through our, the body of Christ, the church. So that was fast. Okay, we looked at the calling to minister the text. The ministry of the text is restoring the soul. That's our goal. We minister the text of the gospel, which is in essence Christ himself. And the methods for effective, ministry, effective text ministry are we want to think in biblical categories as we're coming alongside someone. And then we think, how can I bring Christ into the picture? And yes, I don't want you to think as we walk with people or change ourselves, there's not a lot of, you know, putting off, putting on, radical. Yes, that is part of it too. But in essence, it's we minister the gospel to that because actually the put on is, and we put on Christ and make no provision for the text in uh, flesh in regard to its last. Okay, so if you take nothing else, that's what I hope. How do I bring Jesus into this picture? Okay. Thanks, Ron. Uh, so what we're going to do now is uh, two steps. The, uh, we're going to break into a time of prayer, but before uh, we break out into groups of four or six, if you will, identify your team, okay, who you're going to do it with, and then if you need to go use the restroom to get a drink of water, do that. Uh, we've got uh, some uh, forms here, so you can take. Uh, these and just pass them around. It'll kind of guide your uh, discussion. And so just identify your team and then uh, break into the small groups and uh, between now and uh, 12 o'clock. Uh, follow this guideline, if you know. And those lines at the bottom are for just other purposes, for just internal to y'all, okay? And if you don't have any questions about our class, Carrie and I will be here, you know, after the, at 12 o'clock, if you have any questions at all. All right, thank you. John, you're a military man. Yes, sir. So here's a description. And 